Good morning, everyone. I'm going to turn to the epistle of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, just have that open for you. There's notes on your seats. You might be sitting on them. <laughs> you want to get them out. Okay, praise God. I preached on end times many times over the years in many different churches and many different settings. But I can honestly say, even here with you, twice before, and you know you get a mediocre reaction. In fact, you can often surprisingly be met with a, a, a fair degree of apathy. Not so this time. <laughs> this has unquestionably been the greatest reaction from you that I have ever seen. And the genuineness of your response has, has you know, blown me away and encouraged me so much. Because something happened to me. I shared it with you a few weeks ago. I felt like the light came on in my mind. And I'm talking to someone who has extensively studied end times. But something different happened just a couple of weeks back, just maybe three or four weeks ago. As the political situation in the world and the financial situation in the world began to change, and I went back to these studies, it just everything looked different. And I, I praise God, we're not alone. Friday in here, I, well, I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> I, I feel we crossed the line. You know, I just felt we crossed the line Friday to, to something different. The sincerity in here was excellent. I mean, people were, were getting ready. And I'm not joking. Individuals, you, some of you, were beginning to, for, maybe for the first time, to actually take it seriously that the world will end. And to actually start to think, oh, hey, hang on a minute. It's not just another sermon. It's not just another Sunday where we leave and it has no effect upon us. But this is actually happening with such speed, it is terrifying. The speed of change is awesome. And you have been warned about that. You have been warned about the suddenness with which these things will grip the world, and they surely are, are. So Jesus, in Matthew 23 and 24, goes through very graciously, I think, because he could have hidden these things from us, but he did not. Jesus, very graciously, when the apostles were a little confused, he was talking about end times, and they were a little bit perplexed about it, so they go up to him and they make a plea. Jesus, could you please make it clear? Could you spell out to us what will be the sign, the real signs, the things we can look for, that we can be secure in, that we know the hour is near. And, you know, incredibly, the, the, the grace of God, he answered them. He said, okay, I hear you, children. I hear you, my lost sheep. Let me tell you what the signs will be. When the gospel has traveled around the world. And we saw that in our first week, that the gospel has traveled right around the earth and has landed back on the shores of Israel right as you live. Then you will know the end is near. When the Jews, the Jewish people, having not had a homeland for 2,000 years, dispossessed for the last 2,000 years, oh, but whilst you live, in 1948, they get their land back. And Jesus said, secondly, when the Jews return home, you will know that the end is near. Thirdly, he talked about signs 
in the financial systems and the political systems that would give rise to the Antichrist being revealed. And last week we looked at some detail about how we can see that very clearly. The systems, the world order, the new world order is happening today. Right? It's happening right now. Every day. They are very busy building that system with great cooperation. A cooperation like there has never been. In fact, yesterday I heard one of the leaders of the Islamic world saying this. There has never been a greater buzz within the Islamic world. Because we know that there's a time of peace coming. Amen, as Pastor Elia just said. The Bible says this. The Antichrist will destroy the world with... I'm sorry, folks. Come on, come on, you have been entrusted. The Antichrist will destroy the world with peace. That's what the Bible says. Now, come on, get with it. You have been trusted to be an end times believer. That's a, a precious, precious, special trust. Just like those who were around when Christ walked on the earth. That's a special grace, a special trust. Now, you've got a different type of trust. It's those that are alive on the earth just as Christ begins to return as the church is raptured. So we've got to know this subject more than any other subject. Jesus went on to say more and more signs. He said there would be signs in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And he went through many of them. Just this week, one of the latest expeditions to the Arctic where they have been looking at the melting of the ice caps. And that's fascinating. How far would I have to go back? Four years? Three years? Where we were being told by, you know, science that the ice caps would probably melt uh, within 100 years, right? I think they were saying something like 200, and then they brought it down to 100. Then about two years ago, they brought it down to 50. Last week, what an extensive expedition, I believe it was funded by the BBC, came back, and this is one of about three in a row, and they've all come to the same conclusion. Oh, you can't trust science, can you? You've got to stick with your Bible. They've all come to the same conclusion, and they're saying this. The ice caps actually will not melt. They will collapse. They'll not melt. Well, they'll melt, but they're, they're already melting. But they're not going to go drip, drip, drip. They're going to collapse like a building collapses. Suddenly! And now they're saying, just this week, are you with me? Just this week, here we go again. The scientific world, having come from one of the most extensive studies of the Antarctic, or Arctic, I can't remember, I always get those two confused. They said, it will collapse suddenly. It will come down because the, the structure beneath it has been weakening, weakening as the world temperature has gone up. I'm just saying, you know, it's another sign. Jesus said there would be signs in the heavens above, signs on the earth below. And does Psalm 97 not say that the earth will melt like wax at the presence of the Lord? The earth will melt as Christ begins to come back to this planet. There are signs everywhere. No wonder Jesus says to he who has an ear, let him hear, right? Because people don't want to hear. They don't want to know. Even though these signs are evident, they're all around us. People just don't want to know about it. Head in the sand. So we'll continue today to look at many other signs and things. But more importantly, I want to shift the focus off maybe um, signs that we look for onto 
what we should be as an end times believer and what we should do. What you should be. What special things should I be? What, what advice does Jesus give to end times believers? What does he say I should be, be like? What does he say I should be doing? I was thinking about that one day, actually, about, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. And I went out for a walk and I was praying about it. I said to myself, I came to the conclusion that we ought to live godly and holy lives because the end's coming. That's how an end times Christian should live, surely. And I went home and I started to open my Bible and this is what I read. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And here he goes. Here's what you should do in the end, as an end times believer. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God's return and speed it's coming. So there it is, folks. And I want to go through today, if you like, what would be the top 10 things that Christ would tell you and tell me to be and to do in the last days. We'll do it this morning and we'll continue it this evening. The first one is crucial. It's a very important point indeed for all of us. And I don't exclude myself. I may explain why. The first point is this, friends. Make sure that you're saved. Don't switch me off. This is a much more complex subject than perhaps you appreciate. People spend their entire lives studying the issue of salvation and write books that thick on it, right? So don't just get an, an easy-peasy answer to this thing. I've got to assess myself based on the scriptures that I see here. And I've got to ask myself, am I saved? And then I've got to give valid biblical reasons if I say I am. Not the reasons some you know, worldly system might give me, but I need the reasons coming from the mouth of Christ because he's the one I'm going to face. Do you know in Titus it says this, there are many on earth, there are many who profess to know him, but they don't. There are many who are going around saying that they are Christians, many who believe that they are Christians. But Titus makes very clear but they are not. And you can tell that with just a little bit of poking or prodding. You see, people come up through the system, as it were. You get born into a Christian home. You go along to church. You go through the motions. I was speaking at an event once in Belfast, and one of the pastors at the end of the meeting came over to me and said, could you have a word with this guy? It was one of his full-time staff, a full-time evangelist. I said, well, what, what do you want me to say to him? He said, well, he's been here like a year, and nobody's got saved through him. And he's a full-time evangelist, you know. He's very quiet, very dull. I don't know what's wrong with him. So I said, okay. I went over to the guy. I started talking to him and said, you know, what's wrong with you? And he was very reluctant to share. But as I poked and prodded, he actually came out with a very surprising statement. This is a full-time Christian staff member. He said, I'm not saved. Oh, dear. Well, we do have a problem in no way. Full-time evangelist and you're not saved. Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1. Take a look at this. You see, that sort of thing really shouldn't surprise us because people come into churches through all kinds of ways, all kinds of means. 
John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 12 says this. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, that is that your parents were Christians, nor of human decision. That's not, salvation belongs to God. It's not something you can say, oh, well, okay, then I will become a Christian. Salvation belongs to God. Born not of a human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. Born again, in other words, right? You see, many people go to church every Sunday having come from a, a inverted commas, Christian family. Many of them have made that decision that John says, not born of the decision of a man, but born of God. Someone into whom God has breathed his life. That's being born again, amen, right? So this whole salvation thing is maybe not as, as clear as we would like it to be. There's a little bit more to it than that. Jesus told this very scary parable about his return. He said, once upon a man, there was a, a, a time there was a king who was having a wedding. It's Jesus, and it's the church. And the king comes into his wedding, and the bride is there. The, all the guests are there. You know, the, you know the parable? What happens? He spots someone in the crowd and says, excuse me, what's that person doing in here? Now, you see, before the king came, that person, nobody could tell the difference. Before the return, that person was anonymous in the crowd, hands up, worshipping, praising, praying, giving. But when the king comes back, he's able to sort out the sheep from the goats. Kind of scary, you see. Because that's a picture of the return of Christ coming back for his bride. It's a wedding that that parable is about. And it's, and it's, not, an, it's not a good ending. Jesus says, take that person and throw them out. You see, there are many who say they know the Lord, many who will profess Christ. But the day will reveal it. Judgment day will reveal it. And we need to get ready for that and be thoroughly, thoroughly saved. It's scary. I was in a church preaching, visiting. It wasn't my home church, just there, standing in the front row with a pastor. And I looked down, and there was this woman, you know, a few seats down there, and she was worshiping away. And I just started to get the feeling she wasn't saved, you know. Strange. I never had that before. And I did my stuff, did my message. My thing was over, and she's waiting to talk to me. And she comes up, and she starts going on about some pray for this or pray for that. And all the time I'm thinking, man, I'm sure God told me you weren't saved. You know, and I'm not listening to her at all. You know, it's gone round in my head. And she's on the front row. Hey, you know, praising the Lord, worshiping God. And I'm just standing. I say, excuse me, can I just stop you? I, I, I've got this, you know, strange feeling that there's something I need to ask you. You know, are you a, um, a Christian? And then you duck in case the handbag comes, you know. <laughs> And I started to say, you know, t t tell me about your salvation. Tell me about, well, as I probed and got deeper and deeper, she got more and more angry. And we got to the point where I would say, look, you know, are you saved? Are you a Christian? Do you know what she did? In answer to the, to, to the question, are you a Christian? She began to tell me about everything she'd done. Have you any idea what I have done? I've been involved in, in this work for like 10 years. And before that, we, we did this and we did that. So tell me, are you a Christian? Have you any idea what I've done? You see? Chris, 
If I ask you, are you a Christian? And if I ask you why, give me a one-word answer. Jesus. Jesus. Could someone lead him into the Lord? <laughs> it's okay, Chris. We'll pray for you at the end. <laughs> the answer is Jesus. <laughs> Do you know what? If you poke and prod a true believer, you will find Christ. You will, right? You will. But when you start to shake an unbeliever, it's surprising what justification they come out with. You see, it's not that simple. It's not about you being here every Sunday. It's not about your sincerity. It's not about your sacrifice. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. They can give their body in the flames for wrong motives and wrong reasons. And indeed, they do it every day for a multitude of reasons all around the world. Being saved is not that simple. And the Bible is very clear. There's four steps for salvation, in my opinion. Four steps that you can be secure with. Anything short, and you're taking risks that I personally don't want to take. You must repent. And by that I mean you need to specifically name to me what you're repenting of. You're not talking something vague. If you're going to repent, I want to know what off. That's the first step towards salvation. That was the first words out of the mouth of Jesus and John the Baptist, and Peter. Repent. That's the first thing. Secondly, you must put your faith, believe in God. Thirdly, you must be baptized, and we must receive the Holy Ghost. Those four steps are right through the book of Acts, in the book of Hebrews, and that is the full gospel. Anything short of that, I would not want to take any risks over. I'm not your judge, praise God. Jesus is your judge, and we'll leave that to him. I'm just saying, you have a very clear step-by-step -step process in your Bible. Uh, my advice to you is follow it fully. Dedicate yourself to follow that through fully. The other thing about salvation is this whole thing, once saved, always saved. Have you heard that? That's, that's a very common saying around the world. I think you struggle to find anything less biblical than that, in my opinion. I don't believe that at all. Well, let's ask a question. Did the, Peter, the apostle, spend a lot of time with Jesus Christ, right? Three years walking together in ministry. Jesus put him in charge, right? So Jesus trusted Peter. Do you think Peter would have said, once saved, always saved? <laughs> Not a chance. And let me show you where. Turn to 2 Peter again. That's a great book, you know, for the end times. 2 Peter. And take a look at some of the things that Peter says about salvation. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling, that's your salvation and your election, your calling and election, what? Sure. Um, for if you, do, if you do these things, you will never fall. So he, he kicks off the, these few chapters in telling us that Christians can fall. Christians can fall. Therefore, my brothers, that's you, be all the more eager to make sure of your salvation. For if you do these things, you will never fall, right? Now turn over to uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. This is talking about backsliders. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that's they've got saved, and are again entangled in it, they've become backsliders, and are overcome, they are worse off than they were at the beginning. 
Wow. I mean, that's kind of scary, isn't it? And then in the, in the, in the, in the, in the last, uh, chapter 3 and verse 17, he goes on again. Peter doesn't believe once saved, always saved. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. And I love the way he puts that. Basically, you know, you're born again. You're spirit-filled. You feel secure, don't you? But don't abuse it. You see, you, see what he, you see the great balance in Peter there? He's saying, I know you feel secure. I know you have a secure position with your God. But be, still be careful. Because the person in danger is the one who thinks that he, he had, you know, has nothing to be afraid of. Well, we do. We do in that sense. It's an awesome fear. It's a holy fear to walk right and stay saved. Remember, people love to quote that line, by grace we are saved through faith. And that word faith, you see, in the Bible, in Greek, it's the same word for faith as it is for faithfulness. It's the same word. And it's just a choice of the interpreters, which one they choose. But both apply, if you know what I mean. So therefore, it's a continuous action. We are saved, not, John chapter 1, not by some decision you made in 1972. We're saved by grace through faithfulness, through an, an ongoing walk. Not saved, read the book of Ezekiel, not saved by what you did last year, right? It's an ongoing walk. I'm just saying, folks, in these last days, we are well beyond any joke here. And you need to make sure that you're saved. And I know with some of the conversations I've had with many of you just over the last few days, you're working with your relatives, and we'll, we'll deal with that tonight. Okay, so point one, make sure you're saved. We'll deal with others in a separate part. And back to 2 Peter again. The second point, these are the 10 top things that Jesus says to Christians who live in the last days. The second thing is to watch out for false teachers. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 3 to 4. Watch out for false teachers in the last days. 2 Peter 3, 4. First, uh, 2 Peter 3, 3, sorry. First of all, understand this, that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Do you see? What's the number one thing that the false teachers will say in the last days? He's not coming. It's not the end. And you need to take very close care about that statement there. When you hear people start to say, you know, you don't need to listen to this. You don't need to pay any attention to that. It's not the end. You've got plenty of time. Relax. Watch it. It's not a good spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit, I can tell you. Because God wants you to be ready. Scoffers will come, particularly, we are warned in the last days, put it, trying to put us into a, a false sense of security, trying to put you at your ease when you shouldn't be in, in, in this way, and they will scoff and, and, and laugh at us. So prepare yourself for that. The other thing is that they will be saying, you know, they will be saying, and I can't remember, was it Thessalonians, in the last days that these false teachers will be telling people what their itching ears want to hear, and it will be peace, peace. Well, I'm sorry, folks, we have a gospel to preach. 
And that gospel doesn't bring peace. Jesus said that. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword into your home to divide mother and child, father and son, brother and sister, right? The gospel doesn't bring peace, I'm afraid. Not in that sense. It brings a lot of trouble when you obey it and when you preach the, the true full gospel. So don't look for that. But as I say, the Antichrist will, will destroy the world with peace. I believe that there is a, 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 a veritable tsunami of false teaching coming across the world. Something that we must be ready for. Something that you must prepare yourself for so that you're able to deal with it when it comes. I won't say any more than that. You hear me? I'm saying that I believe, and I'm not alone, that there's an almighty wave well underway in preparation of false teaching in the last days that will try and pull. You can look at it in the book of Revelation. It's called the great apostasy, where people go two ways. The true church and those that get deceived and fall away. And I can see the beginnings of the, of, of the birth pangs of that very system on the earth, I believe. So be careful. Therefore, all the more we should be attentive and know what we believe, know why we believe it, stay in churches with a good authority structure. Amen? That's very important. And stick with Scripture at all times. So number one, make sure you're saved. Number two, Jesus tells us, watch out for false teachers. And number three, don't be idle. And this is one of my favorite passages. Matthew chapter 20, please. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. Don't be idle in the last days. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them out into his vineyard. About the third hour, now this is probably the patriarchs, right? They're watching for the Messiah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is a watch Jesus is referring to. About the third hour, he went out and saw others still standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. He went out again about the sixth hour. This would be maybe the apostles. The time when Christ was on earth, it's, the, 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 it's another watch. And again, about the ninth hour, and, and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, who's that? That's us. About the eleventh hour, and this is sad, he went out and found others still standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? <laughs> They're idle in the last hour. Laborers who were sent into the field... And in the last hour, during the last watch, he finds them idle. That's dreadful, absolutely awful. Talking, I believe, about the end times church. Now, I stress that the word idle here doesn't mean idle. <laughs> Not in my opinion. I believe that these people are probably very busy. You take a church like this, you can be very busy. You're mostly professionals. I know you're busy. But if you're only busy with your own life and with your own ends, then God, in my opinion, calls that idle. Idle to what? Idle to the purposes of God. Sleepy in the last days. Idle during the last watch. You fell for it. Fell for the great distraction that life can put on us all. 
don't be so foolish in the last hour. I know we're busy, folks. We're all busy. No problem. It's fine to be busy and do a good job in whatever you do. But heed the warning. Do not be idle towards the things of God. That's what that is, is alluding to right there. Make sure, of course, we have our work responsibilities. We have our family responsibilities. We have our studies and all those things. Fine. But it's called sacrifice, isn't it? <laughs> we go that extra mile and we make ourselves available for the things of God. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Right? I know even some of you have to work on Sunday. I think taking a job for Sunday is it's a killer. You know? I know you, maybe you can't avoid that. I understand that. Don't take a guilt trip. That's not where I'm coming from. Right? It's not where I'm coming from. I understand that. I fully understand and empathize with you. Right? But I'm saying to you, I, I just can't afford to do that. I mean, obviously I can't afford to do that. <laughs> but when I wasn't in ministry, when I wasn't in ministry, I didn't do it. When I wasn't in ministry, I didn't do it. And God honored me right the way through. Right? And I can tell you testimony after testimony about that very fact about standing on principle and saying, no, my Sundays are going to be beyond reach for any reason. And ultimately, God will see me through because of that. But I fear in these last days, where is it? Forgotten, sorry. The, in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. Cold towards God, right? And th this is part of what you see. You know, generations are changing. There used to be a patriarchal system that a father, a Christian man who's born again, would raise his children, how? To follow God. And if he did certain ministries, his son, his daughters would follow him on into ministry. Amen. Right, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It went down the family tree. We're not seeing that. Do you know our Bible colleges? Do you know who goes to Bible college, the percentage? Unbelievers. From unbelieving homes. Sad. You see, it used to be Christian families would send their children to Bible college. And they've noted how there's been a big swing. The, Christian, the, the children from the Christian homes don't even go to church half the time. So why? <laughs> why? I'll tell you why. Because the standards are so low. That's why. The standards have become so low within families that the, the youth, you know, youth need a vision, don't they? Youth need something to, to hang their hat on, something to go for. And in order to do that, who do they look to? Mum and dad. And I know they can rebel against it. I know they can, but all the time they want it. They want something sincere, something real. And they'll give their lives for that. But because they, it, it's so low, this is where the problem comes in. And then we lose our, our children to this. And don't tell me about it. I've had it. I'm sick of it. I've had it for years. You talk to, 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 to families who, who are missing on Sunday. You say, where well, I went to play football with my son. I love him. <laughs> you took your son on Sunday morning to play football. And when you did that, you've got to understand what you're doing. You communicated to him that he was more important to you than God. Really. Wouldn't you be better bringing him into church and saying, well, go and play football in the afternoon? Play football, no problem. Enjoy yourself. I'm just saying, as a father, as a mother, you input certain things that are untouchable and then teach your child the ways of the Lord when they are young and they will not forget them. 
And then five, six years go by, and that son or that daughter won't go to church. And then they bring them to us. And say, would you do? Well, you see, you taught him that he was more important than God. And so why is it, this is why he's like that. This is why she's like that. Because they think, well, hey, I'm really important. Go and do what I want. It's all about me. No, it's not about you. It's about him. Amen. These are tough decisions. But because people won't make these decisions, we end up with, with a crisis that we've got. Bible college is full of, Christian, full of people from unbelieving families. I know how tough it is. Guys, our son hasn't long left home. I believe me, there were rules in our house. Not harsh, but they were unbreakable. You are going to church, believe me. <laughs> Even if I have to hogtie you. You are going to church. I tell you, some of you have met James, our son, but he is a very calm, collected, and lovely individual. Well, it's not easy gotten, is it? It ain't breaking. And that requires certain things of you and of me that are hard. We suffer for it, I'm telling you. In these last days, don't fall for it. Make sure you're saved. Watch out for false teachers. Don't be idle. Matthew 25, the next one, be spirit-filled. And once again, this gets, this gets really scary here. It truly does. Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. Look at that. Be spirit-filled in the last days is this fourth point. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 1 says this, at that time, what time? The end times is the context of the previous two chapters. At that time, in the end times, the kingdom of heaven, what's that? The church. In the end times, the church will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. That's right, over 2,000 years. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you, for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The rapture took place. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. And look at the last bit. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, the more you study that particular little parable there, the more you should really end up on your toes. I'll say it again. There's no mistakes in your scriptures. None. They all had oil. And it's a biblical principle, you see. First you get the blood, then you get the oil. And the blood means, that to me, they, they were believers. And Jesus wants you to see that. These were believers, not only believers, but believers in whom was the Holy Ghost, Spirit-filled believers. Now, five of them backslide, that's half, half the church. There's going to be a great falling away, a great apostasy in the last days, where people will leave and go after this false teaching that I, I mentioned earlier. But five were wise and five kept their oil. Now, if that doesn't make us sit up and take notice, I don't know what it will take. 
Now, these foolish virgins made a very simple mistake. And it's a mistake I've made until the very recent past, just until a couple of weeks ago. What was it? <laughs> they thought there was plenty of time. They thought there was plenty of time. And I state it to you again, as I showed you the dome on the rock there last week, and, and, and how in my mind, you know, there was the pre-trib rapture and the mid-trib rapture and all this. But suddenly, when I say my eyes have been opened, what I mean is I, I, I see that the reality is at any moment we could actually be raptured because we could miss it in a thousand ways. What happens if we're wrong about this or we miss that? Boom, we're gone. Like a thief in the night. He comes and snatches away his bride. And I want to be ready. These virgins here thought there was plenty of time and the other thing they probably did is they got on with their own lives. They thought, well, I'm just going to get my degree, you know. <laughs> Once I've got my degree, then I'm going to serve the Lord. Once I get my house sorted out, then everything will be okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's always... Once I've got my kids raised, then... Do you know there's always a then? Do you know that? You'll be saying that when you're 90. <laughs> I've just got this one last thing to do and then well it never comes that day will never ever 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 arrive in fact people tend to go deeper in the muck with that stuff lost and they lose any fire that they originally had today you need to turn today you need to make a, a, a higher commitment than you've ever made to not be idle we can all do that don't be foolish but be ready and be found serving the Lord as he returns. In fact, that's our last and probably most important point. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Take a look at this. This is Paul talking about how he wants to die, if you like, how he would like to live out his life. And he says he wants to be found in fellowship with Christ. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship. And that's the word I want you to see. Paul wanted to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, somehow becoming like him in his death. You know, to be found in fellowship as we depart this world is a, it's a huge point that I believe misses most Christian lives. Now look at me, pay close attention. This is crucial for your future. Most Christian lives revolve around worship, praise, your prayer life, the church, Bible study, these things, and your relationship with God, of course. But you can do all those things for a hundred years and never know what fellowship with God is. Because none of them are fellowship, necessarily. Relationship is one thing. Paul knows exactly what he's saying and why. 
He didn't say, I want to be found in relationship. He already is. And most of you are. He said something very different. He said, as I die, as I exit this world, there's one thing I want. Now, this is Paul talking. Come on. There's one thing I want, and it's this. To be found, not relationship, that's being saved. In fellowship. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is immense. I have a sister who suffers from schizophrenia. It absolutely has broken everyone's heart in our family. And when she first got sick, you would do everything you can to try and talk with her, to spend time with her. But her sickness had certain symptoms that I just couldn't empathize with. So do you know what she did? She joined the schizophrenia fellowship. Same boat, fellowship. She joined a group of people who also had schizophrenia, who understood her, who knew without being told, who knew her problems and knew the, the passion she had to, to, to recover part of her thinking and her mind. There was something I couldn't give her in relationship. I've got a relationship with her. She's my sister. That relationship never moves, never changes. But on that issue of schizophrenia, I could never, I don't want that actually, amen, but I could never have fellowship with her. She needed others. So Paul says, as I end my life, one thing above everything else I want, I want to be in fellowship with Christ. What does that mean? It means this, that in the last days, I pray that I will be found sharing in the problems of Christ on earth. That in these last few years, that the issues on my mind are the ones that are on His. And what are they? <laughs> Evangelism, Pastor Elia. Evangelism. Going out on the streets and sharing this gospel with a fallen world. Discipleship. Serge in here on, on Friday night shared in fellowship with Christ as he prayed for this that the church in the last days would come together from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And by the way, if you want a sign, take a look around you. You want a sign that was mentioned in the book of Revelation, that in the last days God will pull together His church? Take a look around you. People from every tribe, every, it's right in front of you, if you can only see it. So in these last days, I ask you, what's your passion? Where does your energy go? And if the rapture was tomorrow, would you be found in fellowship with Jesus Christ or just relationship, just a Christian? Or would you actually be there? Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus wanted what with the apostles? Fellowship. I just wanted you to pray with me just for one hour. Oh, we're tired, Lord. I just wanted that. It's the way he set it up, friends. This is the way God has made the earth, to have a relationship with you. It's another warning. It's another thing to be in the last days. We're going to continue tonight at 6.30 to look at, at six or seven other things as we conclude this part of this series on end times. But we're going to end today a little bit differently because I know it stirs up all sorts of issues in you. It doesn't need to when you look at these things with our family and everything else. 
We're going to have communion right now. And then we'll maybe we'll sing one song and we'll open up the altar. You can go if you need to go, but let's have communion maybe first. And we'll have a time of prayer for anybody who wants to come forward later. Thank you, guys. We're going to have communion to give you a chance to make your peace with God. take absolutely to heart I pray you would make this not just another Sunday where we go through the motions but Lord as, as we look at even communion at the cross this morning I pray that every backslider in this place would be restored into an intimate relationship with you once again God let us not be foolish 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 let us be wise in this dark, dark hour. I pray, come Holy Spirit. I give you a moment to just talk to God and to make your peace with Him. To thank Him for the cross, thank Him for what He's done.
Lord, we happily confess and forsake every sin in our lives. And we forgive every person who's ever offended us in any way. And we let them go in the name of Jesus. And Lord, as we take this communion, we do so in reverence and, and with eternal gratitude to you. God, keep us safe and keep us wise. Keep us active in these last days. Let's go ahead and take the bread and wine. ourselves into your hands. Would you make us sharp evangelistically as we go about our work and our studies this week? Be with us and use us to share this gospel, we pray in Jesus' name.